Before I begin this sermon, I want to say what a gorgeous building this is. I was here preaching in June of 1975, and you didn't have it back then. You had a very skinny little building where the pulpit was in the middle of the aisle, as I recall. And I know that's your gorgeous chapel over there, but what a great place to worship. Today's lesson from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthian gets to me. It has a message of good news like no other in so many, many ways. Let me put it into context in case we go adrift. You know we've had trouble lately, have you noticed, with not contextualizing scripture? Uh, you just don't open the book and begin. You try to put it into context. This is letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Remember the Corinthians? One of the most rapscallious, impudent, rebellious groups of people in the history of creation. And Paul comes in and tries his very best to reform them. Well, they're spiritually immature. They want to take control, they take control, do things their own way. And he tries his best to set them straight. Truly, they were an example of self-will run riot. And Paul comes in with spiritual basics. Today he's trying to give them the basics of the spiritual life. And he does it in such a winsome way. He talks about his own experience and his own life in the, uh, in the spirit. And he does it with a, a degree of vulnerability that you don't usually hear from places like the pulpit or from the holy ones. He has a thorn in his side. He prays to God Almighty that God would remove the thorn. Three times he asked God to help him out with this. Silence is the result. He finally hears the word of the Lord and he says, God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So now I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, he goes on to say, so that the power of Christ may dwell within me. Now that is downright flabbergasting as I read it. It is illogical. It is unreasonable. Even Paul says, I must be coming across as a fool to you with words like that. Oh, I hope you can avoid letting it go in one ear and out the other, as we so often do with Scripture on Sunday mornings in the church. This is an occasion to listen up, to take notes, and to pray it for all it's worth, because it's worth so much. It's salvific. Paul speaks of weakness in this passage, indeed powerlessness, as if it be a virtue and not a, not a vice. Do you text? Do you see the three little words that we sometimes use? OMG. Oh my God. As an exclamation of heightened consciousness. Weakness as a virtue. OMG. Is he whistling Dixie? Well, that's not the American way, is it? That's not the way of the world. That's utter foolishness. It's illogical and unreasonable that I could obtain power in my weakness. Let's face it, says spiritual writer Richard Rohr. Do any of you read Richard Rohr on a daily basis? I hope you do. Uh, go find him on the internet. Franciscan priest, wonderful daily meditations. Rohr says we feel so much more comfortable these days with power than we do with powerlessness. 
Indeed, Christianity becomes a bit embarrassed by the powerless one, he who hangs on the cross, Jesus. Who wants to be like Jesus? It just doesn't look like a way of influence, does it? A way of access, a way that's going to make any difference in the world. We're uncomfortable with those kinds of notions. Well, Paul isn't finished here. He goes on. He goes on and says, I am now content with my weaknesses. Now that's a profound statement. I had to look up content. The only thing I could think of was Elsie the contented cow when I read the word content. Do you remember Elsie? How long ago was that? 30 or 40 years ago? Contented means a state of satisfaction. Paul says, I am in a state of satisfaction with my powerlessness, with my weaknesses, with my frailties, with my loose ends and frayed edges. And then he spells it out in more graphic terms. Not only weaknesses, but insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, nakedness, power, and the sword. I am content with my weakness. Why? Because therein lies the power of God. Could it be that somewhere down at the end of his rope, Paul discovers the very thing he never, ever, ever expected? Again, the power, the love, the nurture of God. Could it be that his extremity of spirit was nothing less than an opportunity for God, for God to reveal God's self? Of all the refrigerator magnets that have come my way over the years, and I've had plenty, they used to stick to refrigerators, they don't anymore. I've had to get rid of my collection. My favorite one is one that I have. It says, my extremity is God's opportunity. Get your head and heart around that. My extremity is God's opportunity. In other words, when I am at the end of my rope, and I am there or will be there as a human being, when I have no more tricks to play, no more aces up my sleeve, no more resources my own on which to draw and to effect a fix, it's then and there that I have opportunity to discover the power of Jesus, the power loosed on the cross at Calvary, the power that saved wretches like me, wretches like Paul, wretches like you. Probably the first hymn most of us ever learned was in that old-fangled notion called Sunday School. Do we still have that? I hope so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Weakness and strength, how paired they are in the gospel. Years ago in a college humanities course, I was required to read the confessions of St. Augustine. Now, it wasn't written in contemporary prose. Back 30, 40 years ago, it was written in Victorian prose, and I had no clue what it was talking about. It kept using the term concupiscentia. Well, I thought that was a wonderful word. I love to say it. I had no idea that it meant unbridled lust. I was required to read the confessions and in this writing the spiritual truths unveiled by St. Paul are enacted in living color by this other theologian, this Augustine of Hippo, the city-state in North Africa. 
In his younger years, Augustine struggled mightily, mightily with a spiritual disease that almost took him for all he was worth. In his case, it was a form of what we might call today sexual addiction. We didn't call it addiction back then. We called it spiritual disease. But in his case, it was obsession of mind, compulsivity of body. Compulsive sexual behavior with regard to women in particular. He did all kinds of things to help himself out of the jam that he was in, including to enlist the help of his mother. Do you remember her name, St. Monica? She must have had the longest bony finger in the history of creation. She shook it at him and said, Augustine, look at what you're doing. Shape up. Get that look off your face. Fly right. And he'd say, yes, mother, I promise I will do that. And again and again, he fell back to his own devices. Augustine prayed frequently that God would help him. And every time God had the slightest intervention to help, Augustine would say, well, no, not yet. Let me try my own devices one more time. He took geographical cures and moved from place to place. Have you ever taken a geographical cure? When things have become intolerable in Conway, you think, oh, if I just move to Blyville, everything's going to be perfect. <laughs> and once you get to Blyville, you discover three weeks later that you have followed you. And you, there you go again, one more time. He took different jobs. He changed religions on a number of occasions, always seeking answers, catalytic answers, to the fundamental questions of existence. We see religion shopping all over the place these days. If I just find a friendly church to be the end of my search, there I'm going to get the answer that I need. Well, it may be three weeks or maybe three months or maybe three years. I think I'll try another one. These people are too human for me. Paul switched jobs. He sought new friends. He made one resolution after another. Have you ever made resolutions perhaps on New Year's Day or Valentine's Day or Ash Wednesday? I had a parishioner one time who said, Ash Wednesday starts Lent. Lent is the gold's gem of the spiritual life. And I almost passed out as if we were heroic and we could take things in our hands and make them work. Well, for poor Augustine, after a variety of attempts to stop himself from a destructive form of behavior that was ruining his life and the life of so many, many others, in terrible pain and in utter desperation, he hurls himself to the ground. In that old translation, it says he hurls himself into the humus humanity, humility. See how they all work together. And he tells us that he cries out in extreme supplication. And this time he means that, oh God, help me. His life was at the point of being ruined. And at that moment, a wonderful angel by the name of Lady Continence appears. Don't you love that name? Lady Continence. Has she ever appeared for you? <laughs> Maybe she will. With the most remarkable question, she both consoles and she reproves this man, this poor man, now writhing on the ground at the end of his rope. 
She says, and her question is something that I want etched on my brain forevermore. She says, Augustine, Augustine, why do you continue to rely on yourself when you have proved to be so unreliable? Trust God. Let go your fear and take a huge leap of faith. What a, what a menu for the spiritual experience. Trust God. Well, what is the New Testament synonym for God for trust? His faith. What is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction about things that I don't yet see. What is faith? It is giving energy to the better possibilities. Even when I can't see them, hear them, think them, or feel them. Faith. Trust God. Let go your fear. Now why in the world would she isolate fear? Well, fear, as we know, is the chief activator of all of our character defects. Fear stands behind every single one of our fears, our, one of our sins. Losing what we have, fear of not getting what we want. Let go your fear and take a leap, presumably a leap out of yourself into service for others. If there be any of you here today who have suffered addictive illness, you can certainly identify with St. Augustine. My guess is that self-reliance didn't do a whole lot for you when it came to effecting a change. Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps most likely availed you nothing. Or if it hasn't yet, believe me, it will. Change occurred only, only when Augustine, when Paul, when some of the rest of us were able to let go and let God. In his very fine little book called Breathing Underwater, which I've seen around your church house today, priest Richard Rohr again makes an arresting statement about self-reliance as it, as it works with God-reliance. He says something that will no doubt ring a bell or two with those of you who have known weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity, or powerlessness. He says, until you bottom out and come to the limits of your own fuel supply, there is no reason for you to switch to a higher octane of fuel. Why would you? You will not learn to actively draw upon a larger source until your usual resources are depleted and revealed as wanting. In fact, you will not even know that there is a larger source until your own sources and your own resources fail you. Until and unless there is a person, situation, event, idea, conflict, or relationship that you cannot manage on your own, you will never find the true manager. I have a t-shirt that I should wear to church more often instead of the chasuble. It says, there is a God and I'm not it. <laughs> I'm not the manager, I'm not the producer, I'm not the director. I must let go if I'm to know the grace that lies within that. At those times of spiritual arrogance when I am tempted to exercise the power that I do not have, or behave with grit truer than that of John Wayne. Do you know who John Wayne is? Does anybody? Nobody does much anymore. Or to take on the world as if I'm the producer, the director, the scriptwriter. It's essential that I put things in perspective and do it Paul's way, do it Augustine's way. Get to a limit and be able to say, God, please help me with this. 
in order to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, basic one Christianity is about grace. What is grace? Grace is the love, the goodness, the nurture, the forgiveness, and most of all, the power of God given to us when we least expect it, desperately need it, and are no more worthy of it than is the woman or the man in the moon. Amazing grace that saves wretches like you and like me. Blessed Paul, of course, found that larger source of grace, so much so that he could, he could claim contentedness with all that assailed him. I'm not content with any of that. I don't want hardship, persecution, nakedness, power, and sword in my life. I avoid it. But I get, I get to where he's speaking. He gets me. He gets to me. I can see that his extremity most certainly was God's opportunity. And I'll take his counsel, his advice, and his comfort for all it's worth. And then there is blessed Augustine who tried so very hard to manage his destructive and reckless behavior to do so on self-propulsion. He's another one who encountered grace and did so just in the nick of time, just on the verge of giving up. He found the true manager only when he unclenched these fists of the spirit and let go when he waved the white flag, when he surrendered, not submitted, but surrendered, truly let go. And I'm ever so grateful for Lady Cottonance's admonishing question to that great theologian of Christian history. It's so helpful to me that I use it regularly. Stuart, Stuart. Why do you continue to rely on yourself when you have proved to be so unreliable? Trust God. Let go your fear. Or if you can't let it go, maybe you can turn the volume down on it and take a leap, a leap of service into the lives of others. One of the things that we do at morning and evening prayer in our, this beloved church of ours is that we end the service with a verse from Scripture. And the one that I invariably end the offices with goes like this. It comes from the epistle to the Ephesians, and it's a great reminder. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ever ask or imagine. Glory to Him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and forevermore. One of the things that I love is reading for my own devotion from the message occasionally. Do you know the message? I'll tell you when I come back a story about the message. This particular Bible came to me a week before 9-11 and I was using it in the church in New York City as the towers were falling. So this is a particularly important book for me. Let me share with you what it has to say about Paul and his weakness, and I'll end with this. Paul says, I was given the gift of a handicapped to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. There was no danger then of walking around as the high and mighty one. At first I didn't think of it as a gift. And then I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that. And then God said to me, Paul, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. 
Well, once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift for what it was. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer, these limitations that even cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, and bad breaks. I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.